if you remember your why, like we talked about before, it's a lot easier to have fun. And if you're having fun, all the rest of the crap, it's a lot easier to manage. Welcome back to the podcast. This week I spoke to Joe Edelman, award-winning photographer and photo educator and host of the Tog Chat Photography Podcast and the Last Frame Live show on YouTube. Links to all of that in the description. Joe is also insightful, empathetic, and eager to share his learnings with all of us. I hope you enjoy this podcast, sit back with a cup of tea, and absorb from one of the greatest. Joe, thank you so much for being here with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's very exciting. You know, it's you're one of those rare people in this world who has achieved <laughs> a hell of a lot in a very short space of time. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by that because it seems like you have this endless stream of energy. I mean, we, we haven't met before today properly, but... Just looking at what you're doing online and, and looking at what you're putting out there, it's very powerful, Joe. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that. I mean, I try. I have, um, I'm a guy, I consider myself to be very lucky. I'm not the best at what I do, and I never will be, but I'm good and I enjoy it. And I don't feel like I've ever really had to have a job. So kind of what motivates me to keep going and working so hard at what I do is the fact that it supports me and it allows me to do things that I love. And now that I'm, you know, kind of getting a little closer to the end of that whole process, it's actually, it's a lot of fun to kind of take everything that I've learned, because believe me, I've made all the mistakes and try and share them with people that are kind of going through the process and, uh, you know, pass on a little bit of, of what I picked up along the way. That's beautiful, Joe. Um, for the people listening, summarize mm -hmm. for me what you do. Well, um, the easy answer is I'm a photographer, but the, the more complex and, and detailed answer is I've been a photographer for professionally 47 years now. Uh, I started when I was a teenager and I've done a little bit of everything. So I get bored uh, creatively. <laughs> Uh, I like to tell people that I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, but I know for sure it will involve photography because it always has. Uh, so I've done, I started as a newspaper photographer. I've done portraits and weddings. I've done commercial advertising and products and some fashion work. And now for the last, where we're going on seven years, I have really had the great fortune of kind of turning the corner and deciding, you know what, I'm going to make my money as an educator. And my selfish motivation for that, because there's always a selfish piece for being honest. Of course. The selfish piece is I've now gotten to a point in my career where I don't have to answer to clients. So when I pick up the camera, I'm picking it up for me. I shoot what I want, when I want, how I want it. And the way that I kind of use that to make money is I'm always looking at the idea of what can I do with this? Can I turn it into a video? Can I turn it into a lesson? Can I use these images? as part of a workshop or presentation that I'm doing. So um, that's kind of the work piece of shooting now, but I have the good fortune of being able to be really shooting mostly stuff that's very creative. Uh, people tend to refer to my work as fashion portraiture. Uh, they're Beautiful. basically portraits, but we're using lots of really creative makeup and materials and props and things like that to do things that you wouldn't normally see and to just create kind of an interesting image. And then I kind of take people along on that journey to show them what my process was, the decisions I made, how I set things up and how I lit it, so. That's beautiful, Joe. That sounds like your passion started quite early on. I mean, what was it about the camera and the process of capturing stuff that gripped <laughs> you at such a young age? Well, there were, there were a couple pieces. Uh, the first piece, my parents had an eight millimeter movie camera and I wasn't allowed to touch it at all. And I was just, <laughs> I was fascinated by this thing. And I was 11 years old when I got my first camera. I had a deal with my parents. It was a great deal. I was very, I was an only child, so I, I was a little spoiled. But the deal was for birthdays and Christmas, instead of just them getting me a bunch of random things, I could go to here in the U.S. It used to be the Sears and Roebuck catalog that would 
<clears throat> excuse me, that would come out every Christmas, and it had all the toys, all the cool stuff. So I could go to the Sears and Roebuck catalog, and I could pick out like one big item that I wanted. I was allowed to spend up to $100. So this is like 1970s. So that was actually, that was a great deal back then. <laughs> That's a good so, deal. Uh, and, you know, one year I got a record player from my bedroom, that kind of stuff. So this particular year, I'm 11 years old, the catalog comes, and I'm flipping through the pages, and I saw the 35-millimeter film cameras. And they just looked really cool. And there was a German one. It was a Hanamex Praktika that was $75. So this was awesome. $25 under the limit. It looked cool. I wanted it. So I ran to mom, showed her the catalog. And before I even got the sentence out, she's like, no, not happening. Wow. I'm like, wait, you can't, you can't change the rules on the fly. Like, come on, why? You know, so I went to dad. I thought, all right, dad will support me. And dad's like, no, you know. So in their defense, I was one of those kids that got into all kind of hobbies. And then when I got into the hobby, like went full steam ahead, had to have everything. And then I'd get bored with it and move on. <clears throat> right. So in their defense. Right. But my father, he was the rational one out of the group. And finally, because I kept whining about it, he finally said, look, you've been saving up to get a, a little mini bike, like a scooter. Hmm. You've got money in the bank. If you want it that bad, go buy it. So I did. <laughs> Literally the next day I went and took the money out of the bank went to a camera store, bought the camera. And I just, Amazing. I was hooked from the beginning. The, the whole process was fascinating. I had my first picture really by fluke uh, published in a newspaper when I was 14. Wow. And I was hooked at that point. You know, I, I came home from school. It was on the front page of the newspaper. And at the bottom of the paper, right underneath the picture, of course, it said photo by Joe Edelman. And then up at the top of the paper, keep in mind, this is a 14-year-old mind, but at the top of the paper is the masthead. And underneath the masthead, it says, read by 22,000 people daily. So the 14-year-old mind is like, 22,000 people know that I took that picture. Like, how cool is that, right? <laughs> and yeah, I was hooked. I was, believe it or not, I was a shy kid. I was a really shy kid. Photography, probably around middle school, which is, the, you know, when I first got that, that first picture published, I realized photography was my ticket to talk to people and to interact with people. Because when I had the camera with me, people like that was important. Because, you know, back then cameras also weren't as, um, as common and accessible as yes. they are now. So if you had a camera, that was like pretty cool. And people talked to you and people were interested in what you were doing. So that was amazing. That was like, it was like my shield to be able to go places and interact with people. That's wonderful. That's such a good picture. I mean, especially having that tentative, shy attitude when you were younger oh. and having that ability to, I mean, was it for you like almost hiding behind the lens or was it a sense of being able to use it to reach out? It was very empowering. Uh, literally the kind of the moment of awareness came uh, in seventh grade. My math teacher, which I didn't even know there was such a thing, but he was the advisor for the school yearbook. And oh. Being a 14-year-old who was shy, I took the camera to school every day. It was always like on my shoulder. And it was a prop. Like I never took pictures at school because I was afraid to pick it up and aim it at somebody. Yeah. And I walked into math class one day and he walks up to my desk and he slams two rolls of film down on the desk. Well, back then, two rolls of film for a 14-year-old, that's like finding gold, right? Because <laughs> film's expensive. So I looked at him, I'm like, what's this for? And of course, teachers couldn't say this today, but back then he just looked at me straight in the face. He says, you bring that damn camera to my class every day and I never see you take pictures. So now you're going to take pictures for the yearbook. That's amazing. And I'm like, uh, okay, what do you want me to take pictures of? And he's like, whatever you want. So I shot the two rolls of film. I took them back. He developed them. And then I came into class the next day and he handed me another roll of film with a three by five card. And he said, okay, here's your first assignment. I was like, what do you mean assignment? He's like, I need you to go take pictures of this club after school. At this point, I panicked. This club was mostly, <laughs> it was mostly ninth graders, two years ahead of me, kids that never wow. talked to me, kids that like, you know, I knew who they were, but oh my God, like I've never interacted with these people. And sure enough, it's just like in a movie. Like I get to the, I get to the, the classroom door and there's chaos. It's after school, you know, there's chaos going on in the room. Everybody's laughing or loud. I'm like, oh my, I can't do this. And I almost That's left. So and finally I got up the nerve. I opened the door. And as soon as I opened the door, everybody in the room stopped and they, they're looking at me and it's like, oh, the photographer's here. What do you want us to do? Where should we stand? What are we doing? And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like 
this is amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> like these people are like actually looking at me and talking to me and they're excited to see me. And that was it. It was like, honestly, it was like a drug. And <laughs> even though I was shy, I always found people fascinating. I, even as a young kid, I was a people watcher. I, I just, I found people's decision-making process and all that kind of stuff, just fascinating. So yeah. photography has always been my access to people. I mean, even like, I mean, certainly the internet plays a part, but what are the odds? I get to talk to a guy all the way in South Africa right, <laughs> by the internet and I'm in Allentown, Pennsylvania in the US. It's like, it's just amazing that, you know, we get these kind of opportunities and photography has given me that. So. That's so cool. It's, it must've been the most alien, but wonderful feeling walking into that club oh, room for the first absolutely. time. Absolutely. That, that, gives yeah. me chills to be quite honest with you i can almost yeah. feel it you know it's but yeah. it occurs to me that being um, a bit shy being a people watcher and now yeah. you've ended up doing portrait photography which to me yeah. look this is something that i'm just learning you know i mean my mm -hmm. my thing is mostly video i'm just right. slowly learning about photography uh -huh. and i'm my biggest struggle with taking pictures of people is making them feel at ease and making yep. and knowing what to do like finding yep. the confidence to tell them you know move in a certain way or, or that sort of thing I, yep. I can only imagine that being a people watcher being a shy kid has made you incredibly empathetic to almost feel how people are feeling in the moment and work with them in that way is that i would correct? i would like to say that it did when i was younger not when i was younger I was a spoiled kid. I was a brat. I didn't appreciate like, <laughs> like so many spoiled kids. I mean, I'll, I'll own it at this point. I'm not proud of it, but I was, um, yeah. as I got older. Yes. And today when I teach portraiture and I teach photographers about how to photograph people, probably 80% of my conversation. And I use 80% because I also say that 80% of my work as a people photographer, it's not photography, it's psychology. Yeah. You know, I could have the most amazing lighting in the world, but if my subject looks tense or uncomfortable, or, you know, if I'm having them, you know, respond in a way that is not flattering, then I don't have a good picture. So yes, I mean, as I, as I grew older, kind of what really tuned me into that, not long after my, my, you know, first newspaper experience and that club, I got into photojournalism when I was in high school and I came out of high school and went right into working for a newspaper. And the thing with newspaper work, you're kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, you're kind of walking into other people's lives, so to speak, for um, figuratively 15 minutes at a time. And you get to experience their life firsthand, you know, uh, everything about it. But the challenge is you're usually doing that at the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So it's, you're experiencing the extremes when you're, yeah. when you're photographing people for a newspaper. That is where I really kind of realize that, yes, especially when you're dealing with people that are dealing with low points in their life, that if you, if you can't not just show empathy, but, but feel empathy, if, if you really, if it's not real, you're not going to do your job well. And um, on the flip side, being able to really get your head wrapped around that idea of empathy and feeling it and trying to understand their experience. That's also what helps you anticipate mm -hmm. what's going to happen so that you're ready to photograph things and ready to get those shots that have impact. So that was the point where that kind of really came together for me. But it, it, even, even now doing portraits, it, it still very much applies. A person comes into my studio, we could be doing the most creative thing in the world if they're having a really bad day or if they're a person who is lacking confidence or any number of yeah. things, all of that is walking in front of my camera. And yes. if I've got a vision, that's completely different Then my challenge is, is to get that person into the right headspace in order mm. to do that. I suppose you've learned tricks and tips to achieve this over the years. My there, main... there are fewer tricks, but, but yeah, Indeed. A lot of practice. <laughs> a lot of practice. Yep. What would you, where would you start with somebody that they come into your studio for a portrait session? They mm -hmm. have very low sort of body image, self image issues. How right. do you work with something like that? Cause that's very deeply entrenched in people. Uh, it's extremely deeply entrenched. So the good part is 
most of the time, if somebody's going to walk in front of my camera <clears throat> and they're, they are suffering from those issues, the reason why they're walking in front of my camera is because they've seen my work and they like it. So they're anticipating, well, th there's a good chance this guy's going to make me look good. So okay. that at least, that's kind of, that's what gets the door open, right? And, and allows them to walk through. Uh, at that point, really, one of the first mistakes that, that new photographers make is they're too anxious to cup the camera and start shooting. Okay. And they're kind of overlooking the fact that it's the camera that the person's afraid of. So I spend, <clears throat> excuse me, I spend a lot of time talking, a lot of time talking. I always make sure if, if it's a studio session, I make sure that everything in my studio is set up for the first shot so that I'm not going to be spending any time fiddling with my cameras or making adjustments or, um, you know, a, a big new photographer mistake is they do that first test shot and they look at the back of the camera just to check it out, which is good. And it's kind of like, oh, crap. You know, well, at that point, you've just like lost your subject, right? So, yes. you know, I, I don't, I don't want to have that oh crap moment. In fact, I don't even want to have to look at the back of the camera other than a quick glimpse to make sure that I'm still seeing what I saw when I did my test shots. So my studio is completely set up for that first shot, but I'm going to spend a lot of time talking and not with the person in front of the camera, in front of the lights, sitting in a makeup area, sitting somewhere, you know, casual and just, you know, kind of getting to know them. A little bit and i am now much more empowered than i was as a kid i'm very nosy meaning i will dig into somebody's life simply because people actually do love to talk about them. and there's lots of science behind this in the psychology world people love to talk about themselves provided that the person who's asking the questions sincerely appears and feels sincere okay <laughs> so in other words it's not shallow it's not just casual banter and and conversation so I do. I, I sit down and if I send any kind of nerves with a person, I will talk to them for quite a bit. And then even when I bring them on the set, I will talk to them, you know, um, quite a bit to get them relaxed. And then I work very hard at that point. That's a shoot where I'm going to have my camera on a tripod. I'm not a big tripod fan for portraits. I like to be mobile. I'm a little type A, so I'd rather not be locked down. But if I've got a nervous person, camera's going on a tripod because that way, I can shoot without being behind the camera. I'm okay. going to be close to the camera. I may even bend down next to the camera, but I'm not going to be behind it so that the camera doesn't become a barrier between me and them. Okay? okay. Because I mean, any person, even a confident person, when they get in front of your camera, they're agreeing to put themselves in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. And I'm not even talking about a woman who's maybe doing a boudoir session. I'm talking about a business portrait. Okay, there you have the power as the guy with the camera to make them look really, really good or make them look really, really bad. Right. So that's, that's a that's a vulnerable space. So yes. it really is. It's about kind of building confidence. So you used the word empathy before, and that's really the key that how do you get the person relaxed? Put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel if you had you know, low self-image, if you had things that you were concerned about, or if you were having a bad day or whatever, and what would your concerns be, and then treat them accordingly. It's a lot of extra work. Uh, you know, no, I've never met the person that picks up a camera for the first time because they want to do all of that. <laughs> but if people photography is your passion, and especially if it's what you're going to try and make money at, that's a very, very important part of it. That's incredible. It's it's amazing to me how in every in every profession these days, and I think it's mm -hmm. started earlier in creative professions like yours, that mm -hmm. necessity for empathy is becoming so much more important. It's mm -hmm. it's invading the more mainstream, non-creative side of business as well. Sure. I'm seeing more and more. Absolutely. Do you think that the creative industries are pushing that and making that move? stronger than ever? Well, um, no, actually, I don't. I don't think it's the creative industries. I think, uh, not, to, not to use a cheesy analogy, I think it's evolution. Um, okay. You know, we, we see a lot of things in popular media where, you know, it's like, okay, boomer, or we let's diss on the millennials, <laughs> or let's get on Gen Z, you know. But the fact yeah. of the matter is that generationally, and this part I do, I mean, I see this dramatically in, in my photography industry, um, you know, the 20 year olds today are nothing like 20 year olds when I came up. I would argue 
they're a hell of a lot smarter. Okay. Really? But the, oh, absolutely. And I don't mean smarter, like intellectually even. Yes, that too, because they have better learning resources available. But I mean, yeah. smarter in the sense that their priorities are in the right place. Okay? okay. You know, I was born in 1960. So I'm kind of right, right in that cross between, you know, the baby boomers and whichever one of the generations came after. It was a Gen X. <laughs> okay. So, um, and so, you know, I, I, I came up with kind of the, a lot of those old school values and it was my generation, especially as parents who really pushed back against that and tried to be more accepting. You know, you could blame my generation for the, everybody gets a participation trophy mentality because <laughs> that's where all that stuff started. Right. Yeah. But, and, and I don't think that that's necessarily bad that we've evolved that way. But the fact is you can see generationally how we've made these generational shifts towards being more accepting and being more open-minded all of these i think are actually great things sure they can be frustrating at times you know uh, pronouns it's hard to keep up with pronouns these days right it just yeah. is but yeah. but at the same time you know it's about a person wanting to be seen for who they are so like i'm at least proud that i'm an older guy that gets it right yes. i i have a hard time putting myself in someone's shoes who's using some of these pronouns but at the same time I, I totally understand the idea that, gosh, if I felt that strongly, I would want people to accept me for me, right? So, so I, I get it. Unfortunately, not everybody does. So I, I honestly think that it's really just the evolution that we're going through generationally that is pushing the idea of empathy. And certainly I would accept that creative industries are maybe more to the forefront uh, and we're maybe ahead of the curve in terms yeah. of those value sets, because I think that those value sets have always existed, at least maybe a little bit more in the creative world than they have in the business world. But I, I really do, I think it's a generational shift. Yeah, I can see that as well. You know, I think that every generation, like you said, yours was the participation trophies. I mean, I, I'm, yep. I'm not entirely sure exactly what my generational label is or what right. we're to blame for, but I'm sure there's something. You know, but with everything that happens, there's this swing all the way to one extreme, swing all the way to the other extreme. Yep. And some point we meet in the middle where we just we draw the line and we, we start mm -hmm. getting along a bit better. You know, yep. I've uh, I grew up in, a, in South Africa at a weird time. You know, when I was six years old, uh, mm -hmm. the apartheid ended. Mm -hmm. So I've got no memory of any of that. Um, right. I was raised on a farm. Most of my friends were black. Most of my school friends were black. It was just what mm -hmm. it was. It, so right. it was a weird thing for me growing up, hearing about all of this, but not having experienced any of it. Um, right. And I feel like, you know, it, it, it might sound a bit generalistic, but, you know, for me, I, I can't understand, try as I might, what the people in the apartheid went through. I don't know. I wasn't oh, there. I um, but I can, I can feel that the pain is there. And I can feel that, the, mm -hmm. that all of those wounds exist. And it's, I feel like it's a similar situation with, you know, people with their different pronouns, because it's, mm -hmm. you're asking quite a lot of people to, um, except you use a whole different thing, except a whole different paradigm, different wording, all that sort of thing. But I think the more it becomes a normal part of the dialogue, I think it's going to change slowly but surely, and we'll go yes. from one extreme to the other. And we'll have a situation where we have a lot more, I suppose, gray areas as a culture, but we also have a lot more understanding and a lot more togetherness, which I think is really the thing we're not focusing on enough. Uh, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that, you know, I think you and I share a very optimistic outlook on the world and, and how the world will evolve. I mean, I, I hope that we're both right, you know, in that yes. process, because uh, it does. I mean, here in the U.S., obviously, between politics and uh, Black Lives Matter, and even right now, all of the issues with the things that are happening with police and, and young black men, you know, we are, we're going back and forth to both extremes. Yes. And I, I guess, and, you know, certainly I'm having a white experience, not a black experience through all of this, but I see these little bits of advancement that seem to yeah. be becoming more standardized, which is great. Certainly for the folks on the other side of the fence, 
it's not coming fast enough. And, and I understand that. And I think we, yeah. you know, we all kind of have a little responsibility there, but sure. I, I think that that's, I think that that's part of the human, not to dismiss it and say, Oh, it's okay. But I think that that back and forth and kind of finally, you know, finding the middle, that's just part of the human experience and evolution yeah. because that we can go back through history and that's pretty much throughout history. That's how things have advanced. You know, yeah. we go far to one side, far to the other side, and something settles out in the middle and we take a step forward. And that's it. you know, and, and it's a, a constant back and forth. Uh, it is amazing given that we are all the same species that we can have such extreme differences, but we do. Yes. I mean, so. It's a beautiful thing. I think that, you know, the more that we settle into that and the more we just do our best, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what to do. Um, yep. there's, there's all sorts of different political factions in every country telling everybody how to behave and what we should sure. and shouldn't be doing. But at the end of the day, I mean, people like you operating on empathy, operating on just doing your best to connect with people, understand them. And you said earlier that from a young age, you've just been fascinated with why people do what they do. And that's something that's, I resonate with too. I mean, yeah. growing up, um, you know, I was occasionally discouraged by teachers and other people in the community to not interact with certain individuals, you know, like the homeless, mm. for example, they see that as right. a threat. Don't The homeless right. could go crazy and attack you. You never know if they're on drugs. Um, mm -hmm. But I was the kind of kid where if I saw an interesting homeless person, I wanted to know what they were doing and why they were doing that, you know. Um, on another occasion, I, I saw a, a gentleman dressed in Muslim garb. It's the first time I ever saw him. I was quite a young kid. Never mm -hmm. seen that before. I ran up to him and I had a hundred questions about why you dressed like that. What are you doing? And I've got no interest in probably similar to you. I've got no interest in changing anyone's mind. I just right. want to know their mind. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Sure. Well, you you make a you make a great point there. You you used one. There's one word that you use there several times, and it's my favorite word. It's a question, oh. and unfortunately, we we teach our kids. I'm guilty. I did it with my son. You know, we, we teach our kids, stop, just stop. And that word is why, yes. why, why is the key to so many things? You know, why is the key to understanding, which is the key to empathy? Uh, even in photography, I, I tell photographers like, you know, obviously I got into photography. There was no internet. I'm from the dark ages. Right. So, you know, but what that also meant is that my photography, it had an audience of one most of the time me. Yeah. I had to self-evaluate my work. I wasn't comparing it to hundreds of thousands of images that I would see every day. And I didn't have tons of YouTube tutorials that told me you had to do it this way, or you had to do it this way, or you had to have this piece of gear. I didn't have those things. The, the problem that we, we have today is that we discourage the use of the question why. And I watch photographers spend so much money on gear and equipment, and then they spend so much time watching tutorials and reading things online with the idea of learning. And what they don't do is they don't pick up a camera and go try it, but worse yet, they never question any of that information as to why. And in the course of it, they forget their why. They forget, why did you pick up a camera in the first place? What yes. was the reason that you wanted to take pictures? And I try to remind photographers, regardless of what you wind up shooting, professionally or anything else, always remember that why, because if you remember that why, why is the question that we hold ourselves accountable to? If somebody yes. comes to me and says, hey, can you shoot a portrait for me? The first thing I do, I don't say yes. Okay, the first thing I do is I say, <laughs> why? Why do you need it? What's it for? Because um, a business portrait, maybe for LinkedIn or their resume, is going to need to look very different than a portrait that is maybe going to be an acting headshot or a portrait that is meant to be like a family heirloom and hanging on the wall, you know, in a big yeah. fancy frame. Those are all going to be very different style portraits. So if I don't know the why, I can't do a good job. I can't provide, yeah. you know, a good product. So that word why, I think unfortunately, and I don't know about how it is there in, in South Africa, but unfortunately here in the United States, one of the big challenges we have is that the way our school systems are structured is we really kill creative thinking. Okay. You know, we, we really kind of push that why out and we push, you know, just remember this stuff. That's it. Just, yeah. just know these facts. And, and yeah. we teach through memorization techniques and not 
through understanding. And that's what a lot of photographers try to do with all the stuff they watch on YouTube. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I've, I've watched like a hundred videos and I know everything this guy does, everything he says, yeah, but can you actually do it, right? <laughs> you may have watched it all and there is such a thing as actually learning too much. In other words, having too much information that it, it actually kind of handcuffs you. You can't, you can't act on it. So yeah. the challenge with all learning, especially as adults, adults are experiential learners. So the challenge is, is, you know, taking that information and then getting out there and, and actually putting it to use. That is the challenge. I think it's, it's incredibly important what you've said there about why, you know, I think that mm -hmm. through, through everything you can ask why about and get an answer, there's been mm -hmm. a lot of trial and error in the background that's already been done. You know, there's, that's right. And it makes me think that this whole generational evolution and everything like that is creating the why to all of these important things. You know, sure. it's building up the sure. foundation for the why. So when people one mm -hmm. day go, you know, why do black lives matter? When like, you know, a young child asks that, yep. we'll have a better answer now than we had before because we've been through Absolutely. this as a society and learned so much. And it's mm -hmm. the same with when I was coming up, you know, I was very, I was raised well, um, I had lots of strong women in my family and lots of very strong men as well. And the message was, and from school as well, you know, you don't hit people in general, you especially don't hit women. And right. one of my biggest frustrations was, sure, I'm not going to, but why? What is, what is, what's the reason? Right. Like, apart from the obvious, right. you know, apart from right. the, you're going to hurt someone and mm -hmm. you might be stronger than them. Right. You know, what is it that gives us that, that, that incitement, that imperative, you know, and nowadays at the age I'm at now, if a kid asked me that question, I could answer it, you know, right. uh, beyond the physical, beyond just the chivalrous thing, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a duty of care and it's a duty of empathy and it's all of those sure. things. But I feel like the more we approach these very difficult topics, and I think more and more, as I get into it, I think knowing my way around cameras is one of those very difficult topics for me. It's not mm -hmm. of global importance, the way, right. uh, you know, incorporating human beings and everything is, but it's one of those things that, you know, try as hard as I might, it's a good example, because try as hard as I might, it confuses me to a point of just <laughs> absolute fascination, you know, I was mm -hmm. sitting in the harbor yesterday and I was just playing with white balance. I sat right. for just half an hour just with my white balance grid on the camera, just looking at what happened when I moved things in different places. Mm -hmm. And it quite frankly blew my mind, you know? It's, right. Uh, right. I, I go down these rabbit holes where I start thinking about, you know, there's that, is your green the same as my green? And just right. looking at the white balance shift on the camera, I've got to say it probably isn't. You know, if if a, if one well, sensor, one lens can change so much, sure. How much can your eye change and all? Well, I mean, interestingly, case. what you're doing is actually one of the best ways to learn photography. Um, yeah. You know, again, when when I started, um, I would routinely go to the library and get out books on composition or portrait lighting, things like that. And so we're talking you know, um, mid 1970s, I would have been doing this. And the books were usually like bigger than the Bible. <laughs> and they were printed like in the 1950s and 60s, and mostly had these really boring, horrible black and white images in them. <laughs> and I would, you know, bring these books home dutifully, because I really did want to learn. And I'd get a chapter or two into most of the books. Mm. And then I'd say, you know what, the hell with this. And I'd look at the pictures look at the diagrams and I take the book back because I started to realize that I would never be able to remember all of this information when I went to pick up the camera. And if I worked hard enough to remember all the information, I'd never get to the point with the camera in my hands where I could press the button because I'd be like going through all these lists. Yeah. So I did have this, this kind of early moment of like, all right, well, maybe photography is not for me. You know, and then I was like, no, like I'm having fun with it because by that time I had learned how to develop my own film and the whole bit. So I was like, no, I'm just I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure it out practically. And that was kind of, you know, without somebody giving me some cute metaphor off the Internet about failure. 
that was kind of the point where I realized it's like the key to this is going to be just fail, experiment and figure it out and test and try. And so I like to refer to it, you know, to photographers, I like to call it a visual database. Um, we have a, a life experience database, you know, and most of us can remember kind of back to when we were toddlers and our parents told us, don't touch the stove, you'll get burned. We still touch <laughs> the stove, right? And, but we learned the lesson once we did it. Uh, as a photographer, what you describe, sitting there, looking through the camera, changing white balance, taking a picture, see what happens, that is actually knowledge that will pay you back tenfold over the course of your picture taking career, whether it's for fun or for profit, because okay. those are experiences that are now in your visual database. If okay. I turn this, I'm going to get this, right? Yes. You could read about it or see it in a video for hours and still not really understand it. Because the irony yes. of it is, is you did it probably on a nice sunny day sitting in a harbor with nice blue skies and things like that. If you were to do it in the room that you're sitting in right now, you'll actually get completely different results as you Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. So it actually <laughs> expands that if you do this, you'll get this even further. But what happens is as you go through enough of those different experiences, you start to make the correlations. And, you know, as Steve Jobs used to say, it's about connecting the dots, right? It, it's yes. figuring out those relationships. Um, unfortunately, this method that we're discussing, it requires real effort. And as humans, we tend to look, all of us, we, we tend to look for shortcuts, right? So that's yes. why sources like YouTube, Google are outstanding because certainly if I need to fix something really quick and I can find the answer on YouTube, that's awesome. That's like a big win, yeah. right? But if I'm really trying to understand something, I also have to be realistic that YouTube can give me kind of the kickstart and, and, you know, kind of maybe frame where my thoughts should be going to figure it out and even give me some of that information. But if I'm not willing to put in the effort to apply some critical thinking and to apply some actual practice, I'm not really going to understand it. Absolutely. I think for me, finding the balance between understanding settings and understanding how to physically position the camera. I mean, I'm sure if me and you were standing next to each other, somewhere beautiful, you took mm -hmm. a photo and I took a photo trying to copy what you're doing, I wouldn't get right. the same results as you, even if we had the same settings and the same, right. you know, everything on the camera. And that is the fascination with people like you, because you have that, you, the, the vision of the world that most people have goes like that, but yours is just slightly <laughs> askew, you know? Right, <laughs> right. That's, my wife would agree with that, yes. <laughs> um, well, so interestingly enough, so I, I should give full disclosure since I just mentioned my wife. My wife is a cognitive psychologist. Uh, oh, fortunately wow. for me, she's not a clinical psychologist. I would be in a straitjacket for sure <laughs> by now. But she studies the brain and how we process things. And when we first met, we, we went through this kind of period of I would talk about something I did in a shoot and being a typical PhD, she would kind of read me back the science behind one and I'd be like, no, it's creativity. It's like, no, you know? it's like, and she's like, but you know, there's science. I'm like, no, I'm creative. <laughs> so fortunately for me, she persisted. And, yeah. and, and it's amazing actually, because here's why I say fortunate. What I've come to realize is a few things. So the analogy you just gave about us both standing side by side. Number one, the thing that's challenging to taking pictures, not even being a professional photographer taking pictures, is coming to terms with the idea that you take a picture, maybe you do a little Photoshop, maybe you don't, doesn't matter, but, but you get to a point where I love this picture. This is amazing. This is like the coolest thing I've ever done. Or maybe it represents a really cool moment that you experience and you decide to share it on Facebook or Instagram, give it to the world, right? Okay. No other human being, even if they were standing shoulder to shoulder with you, no other human being will have the exact same experience with that photograph as you do. In part, because you were there, you experienced what you photographed, you created it. They are just responding. It's like going to an art museum. They're just responding to what they see on the wall, right? They're not having the interaction with the artist, none of that, right? In fact, Interestingly enough, if you talk to the biggest art collectors and art buyers in the world, almost all of them could tell you every little piece of minutia about the artists' lives that they purchased yeah. the art. So not just buying the art, they're buying the artist.
right? Yes. They're buying that artist experience, et cetera. So, um, you know, the, the whole challenge with the idea of, you know, how would one person approach it? How would a another person approach it? it? It is based on different life experiences, uh, different backgrounds, different tastes. Even the idea that um, every person, guys don't talk about it much, but we have it. Women do it all the time. It's like, oh my God, I'll never wear that color. I wouldn't be caught dead in that color. And yet we'll look at that, that person wearing that color and think, you look great. Well, the yeah. irony of it is, is the colors that we like and we don't like are actually influenced by our eyesight. Nearsighted and farsighted makes it harder to process different ends of the color spectrum. And wow. hence we tend to dislike those colors. So there's actually tons of science behind all of these differences. But here's the cool part. If you learn that science, you start to realize that you can at least influence what people will see and what people will experience when they look at your photographs yes. because of the choices you're making influenced by the science and using those influences to get the response that you want. So for me, admittedly, especially the last 10 to 15 years, that's kind of where I nerd out now is like, you know, my wife, my wife taught me all this really cool stuff. And, and, and she's great because she is, she's, she's a PhD. So she will frequently email me uh, research studies. She sent me one yesterday and I opened it up and I sent it right back to her. I said, could you type me an English synopsis? <laughs> if you've, if you've ever tried to read research papers, like, that's an art form in itself so yeah. so she's great so she'll go through it and she'll kind of give me the the cliff notes version you know of it <laughs> uh, of what i really need to know because i i go through them and my mind is just like you know um but there is there there's science behind all of it and uh you know you can use that science to influence other people but i, I think for somebody starting out Focus on what you like. And the really, the really challenging part is, is tune out anyone and everything, every video, every book, every article that tells you this is what you should be doing and this is what you should be experiencing and this is how you should do it. So the, the thing that's cool about photography, there's kind of two halves to it. One half is physics, right? It's, it's the science behind, you know, light and how we record images, okay? So yeah. that's the stuff that we can't argue about, right? That comes down to hard numbers, hard facts, and that physics stuff, those are the tools that we use to yeah. create with, right? Uh, people get so caught up in cameras and think you gotta keep spending money and money and money to buy gear. If you learn the physics, you realize you can get a lot done with a very minimal amount of gear and, and accessories. Um, yeah. All of that, so much of that gear, not all of it, so much of the gear, is really a convenience tool. And that's fine if you have the money, but it still helps if you actually understand how to get the job done without the convenience piece. But then there's this whole other piece of photography that is the creative piece. And even if you look at the history of rules, you know, when you get into photography, you'll start reading about rules of composition and rules yeah. of lighting. And if you're gonna do a portrait, do Rembrandt lighting and you know, all of these boring things. <laughs> if you track the history back, you realize that when you get back to the grand master artists, the Rembrandts, the Renoirs, all of those people, they had no rules. Hmm. The rules were created, actually, the rules weren't created in their lifetimes, but the rules evolved because during their lifetimes, there were other artists that weren't that good. There were other artists that also weren't smart enough to find patrons. Patrons who would put a roof over their head, clothes on their back, feed them, give them a place to work in exchange for their art, which is what the masters did, meaning they were actually very smart businessmen in addition to being yeah. good artists, right? Um, so these other artists, they did something that actually logically is kind of smart. They started applying statistics. They would look at the way Rembrandt paints or Renoir paints, and they would notice how well, if they're doing shadows, they use this kind of a brushstroke or these kind of tones. And if they've got people in the shot, they tend to put them in these spaces in the, in the painting, et cetera. And they created basically a, a group of almost guidelines or statistics that said, well, if you do this, your work is going to look good. And that's yes. the point. It looks good, but not as good. <laughs> Over time, as people became more social, technology evolves, et cetera, those guidelines evolved into rules, right? Mm -hmm. 
And the rules aren't wrong in the sense that they make your stuff look good, but they also make it very predictable. And so if you, if you think even now where, where we're inundated with imagery of all kinds on the internet, if you think about the stuff that is a scroll stopper, the stuff that makes you stop and, and pay attention to it, it's usually because it's something that you've never seen done that way before. Yeah. It's something that's exactly. completely outside the box. That's what gets yeah. your attention. Everything else is just, oh, that's good. Right. <laughs> but then along comes something where somebody's done something like I've never seen something like that before. That's amazing. Boom. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the challenge with the whole process. If you really want to be able to explore and you really want to have the opportunity to do things that are truly creative, you actually have to fight to ignore all of that information because the other reality, which is a cognitive reality, once you know the rules, lot, I know coming up, I heard photographers say all the time, you gotta learn the rules to break the rules, which is the <laughs> biggest bunch of BS ever because once you know the rules, you're in the box yeah. and you're, you're fighting to get out of the box. You're constantly fighting with this, this piece of knowledge that says, don't do that. Right. And that's the challenge behind it. So you, there, there's a certain amount of ignorance is bliss in yes. photography. If, if creativity is a priority for you. Absolutely. I think it's so cool how you've done this whole journey partially on your own, but then mm -hmm. your wife comes along totally different industry totally different frame of reference, totally different yep. approach and kind of from the sounds of it, not necessarily revolutionized, but definitely like spun your work in a different way. Oh, I think absolutely. That's beautiful. I, I honestly think if it was not for so much of what I've learned from my wife, I don't think I would be enjoying photography at this point. Um, wow. primarily because as I mentioned, I'm at, a, I've gotten to a point which I've worked hard to do and I'm proud of, I've gotten to a point where I can shoot what I want. But yeah. the other reality of it is when you've been shooting for 47 years now, you shot a lot, you've seen a lot, you've done a lot. So if your goal is to be creative, the challenge is you've got to get past the been there, done that. I know what the outcome is and yeah. find something completely new and different. Uh, and it does, it gets harder. Absolutely. You, yeah. you have to, it, it, you really have to work hard to get past that, but armed with all of this, honestly, better understanding, because certainly the younger Joe would have just never wanted to hear any of that crap. I would have paid it no attention. <laughs> even if I had somebody willing to share it all with me, I was, I was too arrogant and stupid to, to even consider okay. it. Um, now it has really helped me embrace the idea that, okay, my approach to my creative photography literally has to start with failure every time, yeah. but it's failure armed with the knowledge of all this science now, yeah. right? So it's like, let's take an idea and let's do it in the most counterintuitive way possible with something that makes no sense knowing <laughs> it's going to fail, but then let's start to apply the science. Let's start to work to think outside the box and let's find a different way to solve the problem. And so, yes, it takes a little more work. Uh, yes. yes, there's more failure involved, but the good part is I'm in control of that failure. It's, it's, a, it's a creative yeah. choice I'm making to let me do something that everybody's going to look at and say, I can't believe he did that with a balloon or whatever. <laughs> okay. Um, and and that's, that, that's been a great way actually to get people to pay attention, just that even in terms of teaching. It, it's like when you're doing things that everybody's been taught, oh, that doesn't work and yet you make it work. That's when you've got people's attention and you can kind of, you know, my goal is not even so much to teach people because the underlying piece of our conversation has been photography is something you kind of really teach yourself. You gotta do it, you just yeah. gotta do it. So my goal <laughs> is to really kind of empower people. That's my goal. It's like, yeah. you know, YouTube is a great resource. I have a YouTube channel, I make YouTube videos, but my videos are about things that will be the same in six years or 10 years as they are now. They're not about here's the coolest new lens that just came out on the market, right? Yes. So yes. Uh, I want to empower people to go out and pick up their cameras and not yes. worry about you're supposed to do this or you're supposed to do that. Uh, yes. Photography is so much more fun when you just really honestly pursue your own emotions. Don't let somebody else define you and define how you do it. 
because I know yeah. I spent a lot of my life being defined by this is the expectation. And don't get me wrong, I'm not looking for sympathy, but it's a whole lot more fun when I'm setting the rules. Yes, absolutely. How did you meet your wife? Uh, true story. Um, in the early days of online dating, Match.com. <laughs> That's very cool. True, true, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely true story. Uh, it was, uh, gosh, 20, 20 years ago now that, that we met. So uh, yeah, it was in the early days of online dating. So, That's very, very yeah. cool. It must have been quite a leap of faith to approach that whole internet dating side of things that early on. In, uh, in it, it was. I mean, I I had been through... I, I had been through some ups and downs, you know, in the middle of my life and it kind of signed off on dating. And okay. then when I got back into it, I uh, did, you know, the newspaper personal ads first, because uh, this was like right about the time the Internet was just starting to happen. And the newspaper personal ads were brutal because indeed, like, you know, <laughs> nine, nine out of 10 people you meet looked nothing like the way they described themselves. It was horrible. Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, the you know the online dating at least you know you were getting pictures so as long as the person was using like you know legitimate pictures of themselves but yeah. um yeah i mean the younger joe could have never done it fortunately by that point in my life i was i was comfortable enough with people and mm. i i'm actually a, a person that my wife you know uses a psychology term you know highly monitoring um okay. and and that i think comes from the still fact that deep down underneath it all there's still this shy guy that's that's there it's just he's learned to deal with all these things but one of the things i've done through my whole life when something looks like a crazy challenge and i don't mean like a let's jump off a bridge and bungee jump i just mean just a, a situation that's like different and and really out there and putting yourself on the spot i'm like let's do it never done that before let's do it right uh so that's kind of how the online dating thing got going it's like well at this point what do i got to lose right it's like you know um and and it was great because we are truly like the polar opposite couple that's like beautiful. literally and that's kind of what makes it work so well so there's a lot of throwing yourself in the deep end in your life and coming out successful yeah. I, I mean <laughs> i think you know as, as long as we're talking about like not breaking laws and not doing things where you're likely to die i think that you have to do that in life i mean it it yeah. You know, it, it gets the adrenaline going from time to time. It gives you experiences where you're learning things at a very rapid pace. And it also teaches you pretty quickly and pretty aggressively. <laughs> if you fail, you're going to get up tomorrow, start the day over, life goes on, you know. Um, and, and I think one of the things that happens in school I was lucky. I didn't get caught up in this in, in high school. I don't know how they do it in South Africa, but by the time you're like um, in um, like sophomore and junior year in high school here, they start with career studies. Like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And that's yeah. literally like how it's presented. Like, okay, you are 17 years old. <laughs> Figure out what you're going to do for the next 50 years. Who can yeah. do that, right? So I, I went through school. I was really lucky because I was so focused on photography. Like I knew that was it, but I watched all my friends just completely stress out. Right. Yeah. The reality of it is here in the U S the average adult will go through at least three completely different careers in their lifetime. Those are the statistics yeah. that Forbes magazine puts out. Right. Um, and that's why even as me, for me, I've done all these different kind of careers within photography. So that's why I joke, I may get bored with teaching in a couple of years and I'll, do something else but as long as i'm still kicking and working it's gonna have a camera involved i mean i'll, I'll never put the camera down that is the constant thread through my life yeah. but indeed i you know i get to a point with certain things where it's just like okay you know this isn't for me anymore i need something that's going to energize me and yeah. and i'll dive in and i i think i think we need to empower people to do more of that um yes. it's not always easy you know, so from a financial standpoint, sometimes it can be be a little scary, um, <laughs> yes. you know, but um, I, I think it's it's being willing to kind of take on some of those challenges is what helps you grow. It keeps life interesting. So. Sure. It's a powerful lesson in just going out there doing the thing. You know, I've mm -hmm. very much agree with what you're saying about, you know, the photography side of things. I watched so many videos read so much stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, it came down to my photos improved when I started taking more photos. That's it. That's it. Yep. And coming from 
the sort of extreme sports background BMXing that I come from, mm-hmm. you, I kind of had this moment where I thought, well, duh, mate, like that's so obvious. You know, you right. spend more time on the bicycle, you get better on the bicycle. You know, spend right. more time with a cat. But there yep. seems to be this um, this mistrust in just doing <laughs> what we feel is right in the moment, right? sometimes a healthy distrust but something we might need to shake from time to time indeed indeed it's all about you know it's all about finding balance but it's no different than a career you don't achieve anything that's worth having without a lot of hard work period yeah so it's kind of you know you want to get good at photography yeah all that youtube stuff is great but at some point you got to actually go do photography yes Uh, so you know, that's a challenge. It's a hell of a challenge. I think yep. it's very true as well what you're saying about how those career changes move and how your fluctuations mm-hmm. within your own business have changed. And, you know, that is for me um, at this young stage of my life, I believe that that's based on where your energy is needed, where your work is most needed. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I guess you could think about it in a karmic sense that you are giving your best and your most intense version of that creativity at the exactly the right time that the world needs it but it's more mm-hmm. for in, in my belief for your own growth you know it's you're following sure. the flow of your own life and the flow of your own ambition and whether that's a complete change or whether that's just a slight fluctuation i think it's a beautiful thing to embrace sure. oh absolutely i, I mean and, and we don't encourage people enough to do it we just don't sure and it's because there's risk involved Right. That's, you know, that's the challenge. When I left the newspaper business, and I talk about this a lot, I'm not proud of it, but when I left the newspaper business, I was married. I had a two year old son at home. And um, I decided I'm going to open a portrait and wedding studio with no idea how to run a business, no business plan. <laughs> I thought, well, it's taking pictures, right? I mean, how yeah. tough could that be? And I'm not afraid of hard work. And then to double down on my stupidity, uh, I went out and I took out a loan at the bank because I was convinced that the brand new Apple 2C computer was mm. going to allow me to run my business better. Okay. It was actually just a gas purchase gear acquisition syndrome. Um, problem was <laughs> I wasn't making enough money to pay the loan back. And so six months after I got the computer, I walked out of my apartment one day and found my car being picked up by a tow truck. Oh, and it was being repossessed. Um, fortunately, this was back in mid-1980s. And back then in this country, the, the actual loan officer from the bank is who actually did the repossession. We, they didn't have repo wow. men like we have now. <laughs> so the guy, he was standing there with the guy with the tow truck as they were putting the, tow, you know, the car up in the tow truck. And I sure. begged him. And he showed me an incredible amount of empathy. So he told me that he would put the car back down, but I had to show up in his office the next morning with all of my ledgers and all of my accounting. And I had to agree to visit with him once a month with my ledgers until the loan was paid off. He didn't have to do that. But fortunately, and again, it's a timing thing. Fortunately, back in that time period, we didn't have all the credit reporting that we have now. So basically a loan officer, he was kind of on the hook because he's the guy that, you know, took the risk in you. So he taught me how to run a business and how to wow. do accounting and how to do pricing, which was amazing, you know? Um, and so, yeah, you know, the failure is not always pleasant, um, but, you know, if you're, I, I think a big part of the one thing I at least know for me, because like that particular case, you know, I, I've taken some dumb risks as mm-hmm. I've, you know, made my changes, but um, I've never been afraid of the hard work. And I, I think that's the challenge that some people have. They're not willing to work hard. Um, yeah. and, and I don't, you know, I like to be the optimist. I don't think, you know, we all have a certain amount of laziness in us. That's part of being human, right? Yeah. But I think that the reason why so many people are actually perceived as lazy it's not that they're really lazy. It's that this, they're, they're fearful. They're risk averse. Yeah. And we, we have a big problem with younger people today and with the idea of anxiety. And some of it is legitimately medical. Some of it is legitimately the way that we're raising our youth and, and yeah. discouraging failure. 
And <laughs> instead of instead of you know teaching them, things aren't black and white. There's a gray yeah. area, right? You you know, so you can't just say failure's bad. Yes. Depends on what kind of failure you're talking about, right? Exactly. And and that's you know that's that's the the challenge. And so we yeah. do we kind of we we're making it really really hard for a lot of the younger generation today to to grow because they're that's afraid so of you know it, what happens if if it doesn't turn out right. What happens if I'm not yeah. good at it? Uh, yeah. well, we all know you don't know if you don't try, <laughs> right? Yeah. You may be amazing at it, but if you're afraid that you may not be good at it, well then you're never going to know. So it, it is, it, it's, it's that balance. It's very challenging. And, you know, I, I, I always say I'm lucky enough that I was dumb enough not to worry about it. it, it, yes. it I'm always kind of a look forward person. I, I look back now more than I ever have just for the sake of kind of teaching some lessons from what I went through, mm. but I'm, I'm always, always looking forward. So that's so important. I, I'm very, um, I'm very curious about something with being a shy person, feeling like there may be still that person inside. What oh, yeah. tips can you give other shy people in overcoming in the moment, walking into a room, could be a party, could be anything, could be that you have right. to take photos. What would you say is like maybe the biggest tip that you could give someone to cope with those feelings? Well, I think so. If you don't have a reason like I did or a shield like I did, a camera, um, I think it's like so many other things in life. You know, you, you take baby steps. But I think one of the first things, like if you had to go to a social event and you don't know anybody, but, you know, it's maybe it's a work event or whatever, the, the best thing that you could do, and, and it's a huge hurdle, but the best thing you could do is walk in the room and pick one person. Just pick one person and go and talk to that person. Because the good news is most people are not horribly rude, yes. right? So, so if you walk up to someone and you can even, you know, walk up and, and be honest, like the best thing to do is, is own who you are. We all have flaws. We all have fears. We all have things that, that we think we're not good at or that we know we're not good at. The best thing to do is own it. Walk up to one person and say, hey, my name's Joe. I don't know about you, but I am horrible at these social situations. They scare the heck out of me. So there's really, really good odds that that person has some empathy, at yeah. which point you've just, you've basically put yourself on the table and they're going to start to talk to you and ask you some questions. Okay. Yeah. Which what's that really going to do for you? It's not necessarily going to empower you to go talk to everybody in the room, but what it, if we all know, if we are that nervous person, we all know that what that will actually do for us, it's going to let us get our blood pressure back down to a manageable level where we're yes. not like coming out of our skin, like, oh my God, which is going to make it a lot easier to deal with more people. And then even if that person, they give you five minutes, but then they're clearly like, all right, I, you know, hey, listen, it's been great, but I got to go turn right around and do it to the next person, right? Look across the room, find somebody that's standing by themselves and go talk, right? And, yeah. and repeat the process. It's like, you know, wash and repeat. You do it a bunch of times, it gets easier because the fact of the matter is every time you do it, you learn a little bit more. I tell photographers the same thing. I so many photographers are like, I just, I have a hard time directing people. Well, the thing of it is you don't actually have to direct people when you're doing a portrait. Just talk to them. Even the idea of posing somebody, don't use mm -hmm. that word. Remember what your, your parents taught you. Don't use four letter words pose it's a four-letter yes. word it connotates stiff it connotates don't move i want my subjects to be relaxed i'm more interested in their body language how do we get yeah. good body language by making sure we control their emotions because emotions drive body language so that's why i spend so much time talking to my subject and just putting them at ease so you know it's but it is empowering to to kind of force yourself through baby steps yeah so that would be my advice is just find one person any social event you go to, there's always at least one person alone. And God forbid, if there's not one person alone, find two that look nice and yes. do the same thing. Just walk up and, and introduce yourself. Most people, if you put yourself at their feet and you're honest, they will show you empathy in return. That's and beautiful, Joe. That buys you the time to get the blood pressure down and then you're ready to go. That's beautiful. Joe, you are an incredibly inspiring person. You're so creative. You're so empathetic. It, 
I really appreciate you and your time. I, I wanted to ask you just one last thing before we go. Sure. Mm-hmm. If there was one message that you could give to any group of people in this planet, the mm-hmm. most important message that's on your heart right now, what mm-hmm. would that be? Two words. Have fun. Life is too short not to have fun. There's going to be responsibilities. There's going to be drama. There's going to be trauma. There will be success. There will be failure. There's going to be all that stuff. Yeah. If you remember your why, like we talked about before, it's a lot easier to have fun. And if you're having fun, all the rest of the crap, it's a lot easier to manage. Yes. That, so makes so that would be sense. my advice. That's wonderful, Joe. That's that's such powerful advice. And yes, that's going to be heard by anyone that needs to hear it. And I thank you so much for that, Joe. Uh, my I pleasure, Jeff. It's been a great one. conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been absolutely wonderful having you here. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do in the future. I'm following you everywhere. <laughs> Very cool. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Cheerio. Take care. Bye now.